Um, I've listened to Buy the Book, which is really funny. It's these two women who read self-help books and then they follow it for two weeks and then they report back. Oh my God, I love that. How do you follow a self-help book? I feel like those are the things. It's all just like, They follow the ones that have prescriptions that are like, how do you, how to be happier? Step Mm -hmm. one, write down all the things you're unhappy about. Step two, you know, change your... Step two, burn it. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that. It's just like that. And so they do this and they live it for two weeks and they keep diaries, like audio diaries. So it's like part self-help, part real world. It's hilarious. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. This is Thomas Rehnquist. Today we have with us Dr. Chelsea Westohuery. She is joining us from an anthropology background into the Crease department. She focuses her study on race and identity and has done a tremendous amount of field work in Albania, which is not a Slavic country, uh, but it's close enough for the Slavic Connection. And I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. To you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. The Dr. Oweso here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Why don't you tell us why you have uh, adopted that name in earnest? Yes. So I you know, thought about this a long time as I began to, once I got my PhD and how I want it to be addressed. And so um, the reason why it's West Ohori and not just Ohori, which is my last name, I Wanted to go by both because my dad was uh, probably my biggest supporter and advocate, um, like a big cheerleader for me and just my all around motivator uh, for pretty much everything I was doing in life, but especially in my journey to get a PhD. And he died before I got it. And so um, and Wes was my maiden name and his last name. And so I wanted to keep West. Uh, so that's why I prefer to be Dr. West Ohuri. The reason why I prefer to be doctor um and I thought a lot about this because on the one hand, I want to be able to participate in, I guess, um, kind of efforts to not really have these power hierarchies, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to flatten it, if you will. But at the same time, I know that for many years, my ancestors and relatives were called out of their name and they were never given their appropriate titles. Um, very often first named or boy or girl by many people, especially I, I grew up in Mississippi and this mm-hmm. happened a lot. And um, just as a way to to just situate um, the work I've done and getting a doctorate, I prefer to be Dr. West O'Hurry. Well, that's excellent. Sounds like an anthropologist type of analysis of the subject. Yes. The perfect bridge <laughs> to what we're talking yeah. about today. Yeah. So why don't you talk to me about anthropology? Yeah. Yes. I know you kind of backed into it a little bit at first, yeah. it sounds like, but... Oh, absolutely backed into mm-hmm. it. So I um, went to college thinking I was going to be a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that's because my mom is a pediatrician and I thought, yeah, I'll be a doctor too. And um, I always liked watching her do her work. She is in primary care and um, is very much like a community-based doctor. Um, and I spent a lot of time at the clinics where she worked growing up and just thought I would be a doctor too. And also kind of felt that I had two choices to be a doctor or a lawyer. And a lot of people have a story like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to college for our pre-registration weekend and I went to meet with an uh, assigned advisor 
And in the office, I, I can't even remember exactly who I was talking to because you just got an advisor for that weekend. Yeah. I remember saying, I don't think I want to take a biology class. And she said, you don't have to. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> oh, OK, well, then maybe later I'll just major something else and still take requisites. But I and I liked science a lot, like science and math a whole lot. I just wasn't excited. And the class that excited me the most was a comparative uh, politics course. So I signed up for it. Um, love the professors in poli sci, but um, it didn't quite get to what I whatever I was kind of searching for. And so I met with my then advisor, who was an art historian, and she encouraged me to just finish all of my course uh, requirements, like the the requisites that were for the um, I forgot what we called it at that time, but just like the required courses that everyone had to have. And she um, suggested I take my social science uh, credit. So sociology was full and I knew what sociology was. Mm-hmm. And I told her, I was like, oh, it's full. I guess I'll wait. And she said, we can take anthropology. It's kind of similar. And I'm like, I don't really know what that <laughs> is. And she was like, think of it kind of like our cousin discipline to sociology. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I signed up for it, um, Another student in my work study, Jobby, he's like, oh, the professor teaches that assigns a whole bunch of reading. Like, you don't want to be in that class. And it's funny because that professor now is still a good friend of mine. And um, I consider him one of my primary mentors. And uh, I almost thought, oh, no. But no, I thought, but no, I like to read. So that's, that's no big deal. But I it was, you know. And so I took intro to anthropology, um, fell in love with it immediately. We had a paper assignment at the very end, maybe six to eight pages. At best, it was eight to 10, but I wasn't maybe six to eight for a final project. And what you had to do was spend a few weeks doing ethnography. You had to, we all had to get approval for what we wanted to do. So we had to pick a group or a place, do some observation, maybe some participant observation, take notes. We were learning all the whole time, like how to be a cultural anthropologist. And I was geeking out hard about this whole project and decided I want to study, I mean, it was was about race explicitly, but I also guess I was just looking at what happened when schools um, were forced to integrate in the 1970s in Mississippi. Um, So after Brown v. Board, schools didn't follow the uh, protocol. And so it was forced integration. But then there were a lot of private schools that popped up. And so I wanted to go to those private schools. This was also early 2000s. And um, do an analysis of black students in those spaces. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't even remember the title of the paper, but something like the value of a private education and race or something mm-hmm. like that. But I was uh, spending the weekends at the main library. I went to the archives. I was like getting documents about what happened when the schools were forced to integrate, when the private schools opened. Wow. Um, there was a huge divide. And, and I went to college in my hometown, so I had access to all these things. I had grown mm-hmm. up there. So um, and then I got permission from the principal to observe classrooms, to go to lunch with students, to interview students. Um, and so I just and I just really felt myself getting really immersed in this project. In the end, I turned in a 28 page paper. And when I turned it into the professor, he laughed, but he's kind of like, is this like this is really her? Pa- OK, like this is really her paper. <laughs> and, I, and now that I'm on the other side, I would be like, I don't want to read this. I read this. <laughs> um, are you still are you still a freshman at this point? Yeah, I was a freshman. You you did more in one year. I've done like my seven year academic career. Yeah. Like, looking back on it, like, what was going on? Um, so you were yeah. precocious from the start. Oh, my goodness. And so I took another class with him. Um, then my next class was religious society and culture. And then I was like, I am doing this. And Mm -hmm. I had expressed to him that I wanted to study abroad at some point um, because my cousin, who I'm very close to, my older cousin, she's like 10 years ahead of me. She was really upset that I stayed in Mississippi to go to school, not because she was mad at the school or anything, but she just thought I needed to get out of the South. And she really, that was her whole goal for me. And when I decided to go to school across the street from my high school, 
she was just like, okay, you have to study abroad. Like you have to leave. I'm worried you're never going to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that professor had talked to another professor in the department about me. And even though he hadn't met me, this and so he um, talked to Mike Galati, who was directing a project in Albania. He um, got in touch with me and, you know, invited me to participate in his project. And I had never left the U.S. Ex- uh, except for a high school trip to Cancun, if that counts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that counts. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I Most people to, try to forget that. I, trip, I, so. right, I refuse to let that trip count. <laughs> so um, I had never, and I, um, I had to even like go back to my dorm room. I still had a globe, and I, I went and looked at <laughs> <up> my globe. <laughs> <laughs> really, that can't be right. Make sure I know where I'm going. Um, only my dad even had a clue of where I was going. He was right. like, you're going to go around the former Yugoslavia? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I am. You know, and like all my relatives, it took a long time. I'll share that story a little bit later, but it took a while for my relatives to even click where I was. Yeah. And I had been going already. So okay. um, anyways, yeah, that's how I got into this. And so I assume your knowledge of Albania beforehand was pretty sparse. Oh, and- very sparse. Okay, and gotcha. so, yeah, Mike, um, <laughs> I had my parents come over to the school to talk about going, what that would look like. And they were like, where are you taking our daughter? You mm-hmm. know, um, I didn't know much at all. So I got like the... Um, Either the blue guide or the brat guide, you know, got mm-hmm. that kind of yeah, travel right. book, um, was looking up everything I could mm-hmm. um, online. Uh, and um, yeah, Mike gave me some books and things to read. Um, he gave me a copy of The Canoon, which is uh, okay. an ancient, older code of law that's not practiced. But at first, he didn't explain it that way. And so, and the copy he had had Albanian on one side and English on the other. So I was mm. able to read through parts of it. Um, but it's just old, ancient, customary law. And, sure. and, and so. It's like uh, Illyrian law, like way back in the day. Not Illyrian, but okay. like, yeah. But mm. we're talking like uh, maybe 17th century, 18th okay, century. Gotcha. Yeah. So, okay. but he didn't tell me at first that like this was not practiced. So you're and, like, I'm screwed. Well, like, <laughs> <laughs> and they still. So the place we were going, we're going to the Shala Valley. We're going to the very northern part of the country, to Theth. Mm -hmm. And yes, so there's still many things that are organized according to the practices of the canoon, right? So I don't want to imply that it's not practiced, um, but... I, I, I uh, it was just funny when he first gave it to me. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not sure how much of this we know now. Um, but yeah, that's how I got involved in Albania. So. And so what kind of work were you doing out there? Yeah, so he had an um, ethno-archaeological project. So he brought together um, mm-hmm. archaeologists with historians, a couple anthropologists. And um, we, uh, Mike had been doing work in Albania since the mid to late 90s, maybe like 94, 95, and um, shortly after the country opened up. And before that, yes, he was trained in Greece, and I'm pretty sure the story goes, I'm not quite sure, but I'm pretty sure he got invited to a wedding in Albania, like someone from Greece oh, okay. was marrying. And so he went over and was like, oh, there's a lot of opportunity here. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, I was in the second year of this particular project. He had done a lot of archaeology in the South and hadn't yet done work in the North. And um, my team, I was on the survey archaeology team. And so uh, we had clickers um, and we were doing a lot of walks and like searching for pottery and mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot of surveys, but a lot people own this land, right? So okay. we're basically people's crops in their backyards, really? um, talking to families, getting permission to go through their yards. And we're in an area where there hasn't been a, much survey archaeology at all, right? Um, and so um, I had never done this kind of archaeology. In fact, I don't think I had even taken an archaeology class yet. Okay. And um, I... I, I remembered, I thought I remembered Mike wanted me to be an archaeologist, but he recently told me he was like, no, you were never going to be an archaeologist. <laughs> Here's the deal. I was terrible at it either way. Right. And so part of it, though, is that people kept coming to get me 
And um, I didn't speak Albanian at the time, mm-hmm. but I learned several words early on. I learned that people would say, hi, dad, to come. And just and I think hi is actually like a Persian word. It's, or, it's definitely mm-hmm. got Turkish roots. So um, it's not an Albanian word, but they would tell that and like motion for me to come with them. And sometimes they would be really insistent, especially if it was like an older woman and she'd mm-hmm. like, grab me and we'd go. And then <laughs> and I learned, you know, coffee, coffee really quickly. Right. They'd make me a Turkish coffee. And we sometimes I'd be sitting mm-hmm. in someone's kind of courtyard until... Charles, who was <laughs> heading up the project, or um, I'm sorry, heading up our team, or Ols, who was the co-lead, would come find me and be like, where are you? <laughs> like, and so then Ols, who was Albanian, spoke Albanian, he'd talk to them and he'd say, oh, they have lots of questions. They want to know what she's doing here. Or, Women shouldn't be doing this work. Where's she from? Why is she so dark? And so like all these translations, so I'd be sitting there and instead of like doing the survey, I'd be talking to people. So you were way too sociable to way be an ar- archaeologist. Like, even basically. though I wasn't even talking, I, I didn't know how to speak Albanian at the time. Right. So I'm like trying to pick up words (laughs) you're just gesturing it just wasn't yeah and I was I was still learning a lot of tools and Mm -hmm. uh, practices of archaeology but it was very clear a few weeks in Mike was just like okay you should go spend some time Mm -hmm. with the anthropologist on the team because you're clearly going to be a cultural anthropologist and that's what happened and so is it I mean I'm just trying to think think of the difference of what the two fields are trying to accomplish like is the difference between archaeologists and anthropologists that one talks to people and one digs the ground you're looking for the same idea no because archaeologists absolutely talk to people as Mm -hmm. well and they um, but I would say so anthropology broadly a study of humankind of people um, and so archaeologists are just doing that in the past Mm -hmm. right and so social cultural anthropologists tend to be focusing on the present um, there's often a lot of overlap, though. Um, there, sure. um, I, I know some archaeologists who will even uh, do a lot of oral histories and, and that type of work. Um, there are many people who kind of combine archaeology and social anthropology with forensics and do that type of work as well. So mm-hmm. it's, and the anthropology is a very broad field. Right. And then I also, I'm not trained as a medical anthropologist, but for the past few years, I've been at the medical school mm-hmm. and I've um, been thinking a lot too about medical anthropology and how that's shaped by all the other you know subfields of anthropology. Sure. So there's definitely tons of overlap. And so then what is med? Oh, sorry. Oh, yes. Yeah, so what is medical anthropology? Yeah. yeah. What does so, that look like? Yeah. Read. So it takes many forms. Um, what I do in particular, I look at the social aspects of health and illness. So that's mm-hmm. super broad. Um, since I focus on race and racialization, those are my areas of expertise. I look at um, you know racial and ethnic health disparities. I look at structural racism and structural inequality and how that shapes health outcomes of different sure. groups. Um, my work in Albania, for um, instance, I'm working on a paper right now about um, health outcomes for uh, Romani and Egyptian populations mm-hmm. in the Balkans and how those differ from majority population, things like that. So, cool. um, but medical anthropology can take you know as more of a STS science technology studies side. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, too, I have a colleague who looks at the interactions between patients and doctors and um, medical mistrust. You know, this is a, it's a very broad field. And it can, in fact, it can incorporate all four subfields in many ways. Um, there's a lot sure. of physical anthropologists who go back and forth, biological anthropologists, linguistic anthropologists do a lot of work with health communication studies. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And have you been back to Albania recently? Yeah, you? so I was there last summer. So was it 2018? Yeah. And are people still grabbing you by the arm? So they come uh, over here? Or? No, not as much. <laughs> well, I assume you speak the language now. So yeah, I do of, speak Albanian. Yeah. People still don't think I speak Albanian. <laughs> ever um, and so um, and um, I don't know if I need to say that on the podcast on the air why because people on the radio yeah no I think people, people, yeah, people encounter a black woman in Albania so right. that happens more now mm-hmm. um, 
In fact, I'm on a page, a Facebook page, like a Black Americans Living Abroad, and someone put a post up like, oh, I'm thinking about going to Albania. Who's there? And I was surprised to see people say, oh, I live in Toronto. Sure. Like, what? You know? <laughs> um, because there really was a time. I was living there in 08 as a Fulbright, and during that time, if you saw a black person, and this does still happen, but especially then, mm-hmm. you saw a black person there and was like, hey, who are you? What right. are you doing here? Right. Um, we're going to know each other. Mm-hmm. So when I was living there at the time, the woman who was running that office of the World Bank was Jamaican. And she and I became friends because I walked by her house one day and her family was having dinner in their courtyard. And they were like, who are you? And come over. <laughs> <laughs> That's really how we became friends. And um, so, so she was living there in around 08, 09. So just last month, I um, met some people um, in Michigan at a dinner who were Albanian. And they were living in Toronto. They won the visa. Now they're here in the States. And um, we're talking and talking. And at one point, they start, the wife and husband start whispering to each other. And then they say, hey, did you used to live by this restaurant and have a house? And you like, have two little girls. I was like, no, that's my friend Camille. <laughs> and yes, and I know her because she was, and they were like, the world bank. Like, yes. Yeah. And everybody there was laughing. They're like, mm-hmm. are you serious? Like, that's how off, that's how few black people were there. Right? right. And they still are. And that's also how I got to know many of the um, African football players. Mm-hmm. And I have a paper um, with a colleague about, the lives of um, black African football players mm-hmm. in Albania wow, because cool. um, we, again we would just see each other walking around and be mm-hmm. like oh what are you doing here right. <laughs> and start talking like, <laughs> like, yeah, like <laughs> um, but yeah so that doesn't happen as much mm-hmm. I think tourism has started to increase but also what's happened is when I went in 06 even though the communism had ended you know several years before a lot of people still hadn't left Albania. Right. Also, too, because now um, Albanians have more travel opportunities that didn't exist before, right? They mm-hmm. couldn't visit Schengen zones. And, you know, now you can go without a visa after 90 days. And sure. so people are getting to travel more than they could. And so it was it was a, it was more uncommon during that time that it's still now, but not not like what like, like not like in 06. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like you have, like, anything Albanian is kind of in your nexus of <laughs> study right now. I'm interested, I mean, in the uh, football players going to Albania, do yeah. they have sort of, I mean, what does the football league in Albania look like? I yeah. assume it's got, is it like, is there an Adriatic league where all mm-hmm. the teams I play? I know basketball is set up like that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And just for listeners, I'm, you know, football, soccer, right? I'm, right. <laughs> yeah, because, well, my family was like, football players, like, mm-hmm. There's no American football, football in Albania. Yeah. Um, so actually, a lot of the players who come from, and mostly so these are like sub-Saharan African countries. Mm-hmm. The pe- um, a lot of people come from Nigeria. Um, we had a, in our study, two players were from Ghana as well. But um, they look at Albania as kind of a stepping stone into Europe, right? And so um, even though they might have the opportunity to make a little bit more money and stay closer to mm-hmm. their home countries, like they could play in South Africa, for sure. example, um, people look at Albania as kind of an entryway in, um, and then maybe from there get a tryout in Italy. Get or, picked up by a B-League team. Exactly. Like France exactly. Bit, maybe, right. go, maybe get to Belgium. Mm-hmm. And so what we found in our study was that, in fact, though, a lot of players get to Albania with this hope. And they're playing, I mean, they're playing for these very small you know, city. So it'd be like getting to the U.S. and playing. I'm trying to think of an example. Oh, yeah. So like one guy felt stuck in a small town and it'd be like getting to Texas and thinking you might play in Houston or Dallas. And then you get to 
Temple, maybe, right. and then right, yeah. and then like, so you're, you're kind of close to Austin, yeah. right, or da- or Dallas, playing but, San Marcos or something, and you're playing for that city right. team, <laughs> and mm-hmm. then and so what happens? Someone gets stuck, and so one guy in particular, you know, he had hopes and dreams of trying to get these larger tryouts, um, but then his family became dependent on him for remittances because he was right. still making more money living mm-hmm. in Albania, sending a lot of it home, but he was not able to get an opportunity to try out. Others are playing for, you know, the major team, like one of the major teams is Skanderbeg in mm-hmm. Tirana, um, but they still haven't been able to get a tryout in another country or a place. Um, but some of them have now That's settled right. um, in Tirana. And so one guy, you know, who plays for one of the clubs in Tirana, he's brought his wife over and, um, in fact, uh, in our paper, the paper begins with us at his son's naming ceremony because he'd been in Albania for so long at that point that he gave his son an Albanian name. So he wow. named him like David Gazim and Gazim sure. is joy. Yeah. And so it was really awesome. Like, OK, yeah. And mm-hmm. really unique to hear his story. Um, another guy started off. Uh, he was the first black football player in Albania. He came around 2001. And when we were writing the paper in 2013, he was a coach of the team now and of a small city um, in Southern Albania. And so, and, and now he's still coaching there. Um, he's he's um, one of their trainers and he has re- since recruited other players to come and play. Um, but others get there and they really feel like they're, cause the thing is, um, so I study race and I study racialization. People always think I study or rather I'm here to like proclaim who's racist and who's not. Right. And so I often have to say like, I'm not here to like name racism, but of mm. course, Racism plays like I study racism um, right. and on a global scale. And so a lot of players felt that they had experienced a lot of warmth and hospitality, had felt very welcome, but in many ways often felt marginalized on the outside, experienced racism, that people could be kind and friendly. But one person, for example, when he was playing a game, um, was, bananas were thrown at him on the field yeah. and people were yelling out monkey and yeah. taunting throughout the whole game, you know, and FIFA has its own issues. That's not an Albanian <laughs> right. That's problem. That's not an Albanian problem, like, right. Yeah, Albania so did not got, invent yeah. racism. Exactly, it's yeah. like, right. Um, and so some of that can just, we could talk about like just the broader issue, you know, yeah. football federation and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, right? Um, but others too would talk about how they would try to rent an apartment over the phone. And, and that's just it. Most players at this point are fluent in Albanian. Mm-hmm. So on the phone, they might uh, you know, talk in Albanian and then they show up in person they would say, oh, we don't have an apartment anymore or we don't want to rent to you. Sure. Several had issues trying to date Albanian women. One married a woman, but they had to move away because our family never accepted him. So we had a lot of different stories like that. And then many of the players were at the time attending a church that was pastored by a Nigerian. So he's the first ever person from Africa that I've ever encountered who was a missionary from Africa to Europe. and. Okay. I had never encountered that. No, yeah, ever. that's not how it works usually. <laughs> no. And so I was, you know, so we went out for coffee. And then um, when I met him and went to the church, you know, most of the football players were going to the church. Mm-hmm. And even though everyone's native tongue wasn't English, um, he would preach the message in English. Um, someone was there sometimes to translate in Albanian. Um, and then um, someone else spoke. Okay, so then they had Google Translate to do French on like a projector. Really? Because they ha- yes, because they had two families who were refugees from the Congo. Mm-hmm. And then there was one more language. Oh, someone was speaking Igbo. Yes, okay. because they were Niger- Nigerian. Yeah. And so yeah. it was all- also just sitting in the service. <laughs> I'm like shaking my head. It was a long service. <laughs> following everything. Repeated. Oh my goodness! You yeah. know, it was. Um, but what it had become was like this. Uh, 
a space for black people in Albania to go mm-hmm. to a service together, right? People had very varying backgrounds, right. but they were they found each other in this space. Um, I'm not sure what's going on right now with the church, but at the time, many of the black players were there, and and so people were definitely um, talk about how welcoming people are because Albanians are very welcoming to tourists and guests, but. At the same time, there was a lot of friction around these racist encounters. And that's something I write quite a, I write a lot about that in my own mm-hmm. work, um, things I've experienced, too, as a black woman. Um, but also the ways that me studying race itself um, puts people on edge um, right. because they think that I am there to talk about racism and to maybe call someone racist. Right? That was going to be my next question. Like, yeah. do you feel like you have to write yourself in the story a little bit? Because you're yeah. experiencing the same things yeah. that these football players yeah. experience. So I absolutely write myself in the story. And, and, you know, there's for a long time in anthropology, there was this notion of like the uh, objective observer, whatever and, yeah, that yeah. means, <laughs> whatever right. that means. Right. But also, um, and I struggled with this in college too, and I couldn't quite name it, but I was able to better name it once I you know, was doing more anthropology studies. It's like, well, yeah, it, I mean, it was a colonialist, colonial practice, or sorry, a colonialist practice to begin with, right? But the idea, though, that these white men could go into spaces and they would not they could change the dynamic of the space. Right. Like, just, I'm going to blend in and I'm mm-hmm. not going to change the space at all. I'm going to. Have this positive. I'm just going to watch you guys all day and you're going to be cool with it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I'm going to write about it and I'm going to have this whole structure written down, you know, A, B and C. And we Mm -hmm. got this. So there's that. (laughs) But also, too, when we got to Albania, um, I felt like I was having encounters and experiences as a black woman that no one else on our team could relate to. Um, Mm -hmm. Our team was mostly men anyways, but also there was no other black people on our team. And, um, you know, so... At first, especially early on, there were a lot of questions about, like, well, where did I come from? Um, people didn't know how to respond to me as a man or a woman, too, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because they would say, well, men go out into the field and men do work. And uh, in much more conservative spaces, they were like, why is a woman even traveling? Do you have permission from your dad? Where's your husband? You know, all right. those kinds of mm-hmm. questions. Um, but then also, too, people were just not quite sure how to relate to me. Um, and then there's a way, too, that I felt like my body was... Um, under a surveillance, both as being black and being a woman, um, I have had numerous encounters over the years, whether it be from like sexual harassment and street harassment. Again, that's not unique to me. I feel like most of my female friends in Albania say the same thing, right? right. But what um, would happen though is that there, in terms of really thinking about how intersectionality happens yeah, and the intersecting forms, yeah. I felt like that would I would have these encounters too. I had a stalker for a couple years, and there was an God. issue. Yeah, um, and I um, was chased home a couple times um, because a guy was making advances at me, and I was, um, not, you know, I didn't want to meet with him, and so like he chased me all the way to my apartment, and just all kinds of different encounters that I could speak to from terms of like race and gender. And so, yes, I do write about that. Yeah. And I do. And I am very much present in my work. And um, I think I, I I see how I kind of went down a rabbit hole there. But the point I was trying to make is that initially in anthropology, that wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it got much more reflexive, that absolutely became the case. And now I feel that people have to situate themselves. We have to talk about our positionality. Um but I know that I involve myself more than some people probably would like to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to find a balance where I'm not just, um, you know, people talk about like navel gazing or like, I'm just writing about myself. But I really am trying to show the ways that, um, especially thing about like blackness and responses to it, that that also includes myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm absolutely in my text. <laughs> was, yeah. And I was going to say, like, how is there sort of a purity in the field of 
do they actually think they can view something without change? That's a scientific principle, isn't it? You, if you yeah. can do something, you're change it. And like, so when someone says to you, like, you can't write yourself in the story and you say, like, I don't have the luxury of not writing myself into the story. Right. How is that sort of viewed by the field itself? Like, is there this conservative block of you have to use this omniscient third person? You yeah. just have to be a fly in the wall. And I think that that may have been the case at one point, but I feel like it's cha- the field okay. is changing so much now that's not the case mm-hmm. um, anymore. But I also think, too, for those of us that are ethnographers, one of the key points about ethnography is that we are trying to do an in-depth, you know, very rich study. And so spending a lot of time in a place also... So I think the idea maybe used to be if you spend enough time somewhere, then you're bl- you've blended in enough, and right, right? And so, yeah. And I and so I don't think that's the case at all. But what I will argue for is that because we are trying to spend more extensive time and really trying to get to know, um, you know, people or a place in a particular way, that um, that does allow us to tap into things that are not on the surface level. Right. At the same time, anthropology and ethnography in particular, it's super invasive, right? Yeah. And so it's like, oh, here, let me come live in your family's mm-hmm. house and <laughs> <laughs> write about your life. Sit at your dinner table, yeah. but don't talk yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think about that a lot, too, because I was having coffee. One of my friends in Albania, um, she's super blunt, and she also has studied anthropology and history, and, and so she was like, oh, everybody wants to come here in the Balkans and study us all the mm-hmm. time. I was like, yes, this is... Please rant, you know, (laughs) let's go, call me out on this. So I'm also mindful Mm -hmm. and remember that because I was, I was talking about my experiences in Albania and she was like, well, who asked you to come? Right. Who asked me to come? Right. And also when I work with Roma, you know, I was once at um, one of, I was with the community leader in a neighborhood where I do a lot of work and we were going around to some people in their homes and I was trying to best because I was trying to do interviews with some of the um, people who had lived in this neighborhood the longest, but I wanted to know the best way to approach people. And I was this is my early days of trying to build relationships there. And one woman told me, she was like, if you're not bringing us rice or food or money or helping my husband get a job, you can just leave. Because right. she was you know, something like, and I feel like, and then she said she was speaking Albanian and she switched to Romani and I, and she was very upset. And then she mm-hmm. just closed the door and was just like, I don't, we don't want to talk. We're done. And um, I went and sat with that for a while and wrote about that because I think too, especially when it comes to Rome, but so many people come from NGOs and different, you know, international projects and these funds and people are really tired and there's a fatigue with, mm-hmm. and, and, and also, and also just constantly being the ones to be studied or, and, and so I'm trying to be mindful of that too. And, mm-hmm. and, what I'm doing um, because it's, yeah, it's super invasive and there's a lot of assumptions made about what I'm here to do as the ethnographer. Right. And I, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can approach them like the most innocuous means possible, but like being a subject of that long Mm -hmm. is become an object too. Absolutely. So frustrating. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then too, and so there are many, um, you know, fantastic black anthropologists. um, You know, so of course, Zora Neale Hurston comes to Mm -hmm. mind first, but of people who were also just tired of the accounts written by these third party, you know, white people coming in to write about a place. And so there are many anthropologists too, who are like, no, I'm, I'm of this place. I'm going to write about this place. I'm going to show you the errors and like the assumptions that have been made, you know, by these anthropologists. And so I also think about that too. I'm in, a, I'm in a different boat, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. as a black woman going to a mostly white space, right? right and right. and so I, I'm mindful as well of how that dynamic shapes the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And, and do Albanians call themselves white? So yeah. That's kind of so complicated as it, well. It is complicated, right? And so that's one thing that I get at um, in my research and is going to you know heavily um, be an area in my book is both whiteness and blackness and how they play out, right? So um, 
especially when I think about the Balkans in Eastern Europe, there's a way that, um, and Catherine Baker does this really well in her text that just came out, but that Eastern Europeans have on the one hand been othered and that not quite white, right? But then also um, perform and cling to a whiteness and assert a whiteness, right? And increasingly, I think, yes, absolutely, people in Albania are asserting a whiteness or, or a Europeanness that mm-hmm. is uh, presuming a white identity, right? Um, in the Albanian language, two of the terms um, that I work with, Dora de Bar, then Dora is Ez, so it's like white hand or white side and black hand white and black side, um, don't get used formally. So you may not see that in like formal demographic, but it definitely gets used uh, informally regularly to denote who is white, like Albanians, right? Or Serbs or Greeks versus mm-hmm. who's black, which t- tends to be Roman Format. Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, but um, when people situate themselves next to me, Albanians, they absolutely uh, consider me black and themselves to sure. be white. Does that mm-hmm. mean, huh? And, mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that plays out more of like people of African descent, people of European descent, but right. that absolutely is there. It's, but it's, it's like, especially when it comes to Albanians, because Albanians, um, often consider themselves to be like the black people of the Balkans. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I have heard all kinds of things from, um, we are the niggers of Europe mm-hmm. to most recently I heard we're the Mexicans of Europe, which had a. I know that that made me and that and so that was an anecdote. I haven't studied that formally, but sure. it, but when someone said it and I thought and it calls into questions of labor too and mm-hmm. immigration, um, Albanians absolutely um, consider they have been on the receiving end of a lot of racism, especially in Italy and the UK absolutely. and Greece. Um, there are a lot of um, like jokes about Albanians and you know not not being um, this uh, like the same level of other Europeans and mm-hmm. so. Um, I also read about that too and just how white itself gets defined and, and really like the racial projects that continually define and redefine whiteness and blackness. Um, another element that plays in is religion, right? Because um, even though a lot of Albanians today maybe consider themselves more agnostic. It's probably and, a more secular culture. Uh-huh, uh-huh, and don't practice. It's still a country where there is a heavier Muslim population, mm-hmm. much more so than other places of Europe and what connotations you know Muslim has now that it maybe used to not carry, but in a post nine eleven world, it's mm-hmm. very different, right? Um, and so, I think too that 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 also factors in when it comes to like identifying or defining race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a comment we were actually speaking about that in another class about the EU talking about the migrant crisis and yes. how during the Yugoslavian war, no one was like we have this Muslim migrant crisis, which was exactly what was happening yeah, with yeah. all these displaced Bosnians. Yeah. But then even secular Syrians mm-hmm. are seen as this completely other force. Exactly. So, exactly. So, and you touched on this a little bit, but I'm thinking of like the international complication within the Balkans. How like Slovenians saw themselves as above Croatians, above Syria. You know, there was yeah. this pecking order. Um, do Albanians kind of have that complex? Is it is it an earned one? Even? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Or? So Albanians absolutely, though, were the bottom. And mm-hmm. so in that pecking literally. order, literally, like, like yeah. literally the bottom, but also too. And then part of that, too, is because you have Albanians and, you know, places like Kosovo that were part of you know, former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. And so there's an order there. And then like Albania itself, which was com- considered out, completely outside. Right. And so. Um, but yeah, th- I think that also plays into the, this relationship as well, right? As like, um, and, and especially when you think about the tensions between Albania and Serbia or Albanians and Serb- Serbians, right? 
Um, I think that 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 um, I don't like the inferiority complex. I don't like that name mm-hmm. for it. But I think that absolutely that type of uh, positioning and hierarchy right. shapes. Yeah, those yeah. identities. Maybe yeah. not inferiority, but there's that structure of mm-hmm. we're treated as, yes. like you said, the Mexicans with yes. the ball against exactly. For exactly. Kosovo a little bit, but you specifically, uh, I wanted to talk about rap music at least oh, a yes. little bit. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I guess you get all, as I was reading your thesis about like who gets to own rap and that yeah. gets really complicated in the Balkans. Yeah. Cause I mean, like we're talking about, you know, oppressed communities, mm-hmm. like give me a break. Like yeah. everyone is to an extent. Um, you said you knew specifically of one Kosovar rap group, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So wait, so this was the 08 thesis? Yes, the 08. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm like, oh. No, I was taking that up, and I'm like, I don't want anyone reading something I wrote 12 years ago when I was 13. <laughs> no, it was excellent. Oh, I yeah, loved it. I'm reading it. That's another paper, too. Again, that honors thesis was not supposed to be that long, mm-hmm. and... So you have um, an issue with brevity. Huh? I, I do. Okay. And so that same professor, Julian, from the freshman year was my uh, he and Mike were my coaches. Oh, really? and when I turned it in, he's kind of like, what are you doing? Grades are due tomorrow. Yeah, no, I think it was like 109 pages. Yeah. And the person closest to it was like 60. I mm-hmm. did that. And um, he got again was like, I think I saw the page count. I said, like, goddamn, like, <laughs> I think I was in the same boat. There we go again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so um, there's this group, the group in Kosovo, um, the Ethnic Angels have this song, Proud to Be an Albanian. And so that was one of the first ones I saw. Now, many people look at that kind of music and they, they're like, OK, they don't take it seriously. This is not serious hip hop. And there are some serious hip hop artists, I think, in Tirana, in Pristina, mm-hmm. um, in Skopje, you know, Albanian artists. But that song spoke to me. And so uh, Red and Black I Dress, Eagle on My Chest, It's Good to Be an Albanian, Keep My Head Up High for the Flag I Die, and I'm Proud to Be an Albanian, right? And so that song really spoke to me because, like, maybe around the summer of 06 or 07, I saw a video. Uh, I saw that rap video. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they got rap music over here? That's no, what I was that was like. before oh, you'd yeah. even gone, right? No, this or... is when I was in Al- okay, so okay, I, gotcha. I was there, but I just didn't. Um, the, the kind of the guest house we were staying the two sons, their young, young kids, were watching like the music channel, mm-hmm. and it just didn't occur to me that I would see right. a rap video and like see Albanians rapping. So like you know, it made me mm-hmm. kind of turn my head. Like what? This is '06, I think, and so it just got me thinking about like. Um, and of course, I, so I wasn't surprised to hear people like playing Tupac and Biggie. Surprised because they were playing it as though they were both still alive. It was, and, brand you know, new. was like yeah, it was like brand new. Did you have you to know, break Biggie. it to anyone? Like yeah. that would have been awful. No, I didn't have to break it to anybody. But it was like uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, people knew, people were aware. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised. I was not surprised to see you know like American hip hop traveling as much as I was surprised to see kind of the own forms of hip hop and how this like what it looked like in Albania. And mm-hmm. so then I bring up that particular song though because I was really interested in um, like nationalism at the time and. Just how um, looking at like music and like performing, you know, nationalism and belonging. And so that's what got me kind of on the path that I'm on now with my research is just sure. thinking about what that looked like in rap music. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rap music just has this legs that I think other contemporaries yeah. doesn't. I think yeah. of uh, 
the Gulf War. Oh, I was thinking the movie Three Kings. Mm-hmm. And they go through the Gulf War and everyone's listening to rap music in yeah. the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, it just has like a totally, a cultural resonance that mm-hmm. it, it uh, you know, pop music doesn't mm-hmm. really earn. Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think too, so, you know, one of the beautiful gifts of hip hop is just this, the storied form and, and the ways of it becomes a tool for, you know, fighting back. Um, mm-hmm. It's a tool of resistance against oppression, but also as a means of organizing uh, collective um, formations. And so to see people talk about that, you know, like Albanians in Kosovo in, in their music. Um, and also, so there's a growing, so, you know, there's people who, um, Roma who perform and, you know, do like traditional Romani music. And then I'm just talking with some of this about like, um, like there's um, growing hip hop in Roma circles as well. And some of it's fusing, uh, kind of fusing both forms, which I'm excited to yeah. see. But, um, you know, but also uh, in, a, in a, some of the songs I've heard by some Roma artists, they also talk about the experiences um, of being racialized in particular ways hmm. in parts of Europe. Right. And so also to see that, to see people um, kind of look to hip hop. And um, it, I think that's also just really powerful. I, mm-hmm. I like to see that a lot. One thing I was grappling with at the time wasn't really like maybe who owns it, but kind of this question of, is this American music being exported and people saying, I'm going to tap into this and just try to copy what people are doing mm-hmm. in the United States. Because or, it's cool. Because it's like, cool, right? right? Or like, is what's happening in the U.S. and these forms of hip hop giving us like a vehicle to then be able to express our own situations, mm-hmm. right? Which is what I was seeing more and more of. I think the problem though, too, and I later, like with, with hindsight, I was able to see this more, that the question around like authenticity and even ownership becomes important because oftentimes when it comes to the United States, things that are produced by black Americans get co-opted by other groups and people and places. And so there's absolutely a warranted fear about like, then who gets to, you know, name it and own and Mm -hmm. claim it because so often things have been stripped or, or stolen. Right. Right. And so that, that, and that's very real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I would love to have an entire podcast about rap music, to be honest. <laughs> really? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it just takes up a special space, I think. So I think we're approaching the end of our time about the mother of microphones is shaking her head at me. So I usually end by asking, what was the last your last favorite movie you've seen, last favorite book you've read? Could have nothing to do with Albania uh, oh, or anything. Okay. Okay. This is to, you know, introduce you to the viewers on a more oh, personal way. Oh, my goodness. Way. The last favorite book I read. You can lie, too. I I'm could- sure people lie all the time. Like. <laughs> The Communist Manifesto, of course. <laughs> oh, goodness. And <laughs> drawing a blank. Like, I don't read. No, I read. <laughs> <laughs> like, all of a sudden, like, all the spot. What books Yo, I mean, are sometimes people view that question as like, I got to show how smart I am right I now. So I got to say the coolest thing. Yeah. Like, or which is- book? Well, also, too, because the legit book I last finished is not the one I want to talk about, but mm-hmm. it's Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Oh, okay. That's excellent. <laughs> That's not the one I want to talk about. But I, I did read it because I'm mm-hmm. like, I really want to tidy up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, lear- I learned her, like, new folding process. Yes. And I lasted, like, a week. Okay. I was just like, that's because you have to do the whole process. Yes, exactly. She would say that you did mm-hmm. it, yeah. And, so, and I am somebody who has done it wrong, so I'm going to do it right this yeah, time. That's yeah. why I read the book. Yeah, Instead of watch the Netflix show. A yeah. week later, I'm just <laughs> You know, one book, well, so one book that's been really with me is Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. And mm-hmm. I mean, and so, though geared towards a young adult audience, it's mm-hmm. a fantastic read. It's I think it's a book. great movie, too. I think oh, that just came out. Right? Yeah, I had I didn't see it, so I had good reviews. So, okay, it is a good movie, but I had issues with it because I didn't, not only did it not stick to the book, 
there were some key things that were changed yeah. in the movie that I just was not a fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really enjoyed the book and in particular the way that I think that book allows us to have conversations about race, which is kind of one thing I see is like just my one of my main missions is to be able to talk more about it because people are very afraid to talk right. about it. Mm-hmm. And in particular, that you know, I'm talking about the United States, but also I think just globally, we have a lot of issues, uh, but especially in this country, talking about it. And so one thing I look at as I began to think about my classes and with my students too is how to cultivate conversations. And I feel like that book has done a really good job of allowing people to be able to talk about things. Yeah, it's so, very yeah. right. That actually reminds me of our soccer conversation too. Yeah. FIFA has this huge problem. They still have yes. banners that say like fight to end racism. Exactly. That would never happen yeah. in America. Yeah. Like imagine yeah. NBA game. Yeah. Like if there's a banner there, yeah. that would never happen. Yeah. Or like if in the response to Colin Kaepernick, the NFL, no, <laughs> like no. a pledge. It wasn't a double down by the yes, NFL. Exactly. If we're going to fight to end it. Yeah. yeah. And I think the that's one of, one of the things I think about is what I want to do with my topics that I teach about and introducing students to courses is to be able to get to a point where we can all call out racist structures and systems, not even thinking about the intent of somebody and like right. a moral failing even, but like the, that these are things are having racist impacts and we need to dismantle them, mm-hmm. right? And I, I want to be able to get people to that place. And if I could speak to Roger Goodell in the NFL, like, yeah. this is where y'all really messed up. <laughs> right. But Colin Kaepernick was showing you that this is what the impact is, and we could address that. You could use your billions of dollars to actually, instead of just saying, no, now we're going to fine you. And your response proved what he did. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah that's another podcast. Too. That's, that's another podcast. more frustrating that's one. another podcast, too. I'd and love to come back and talk about it. We have about. three, I think, <laughs> right <laughs> now. I'm so. like, yeah. Already, I'm like, we're out of time. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm so things okay okay <laughs> we're getting an okay from we're michelle getting an okay. okay that's a big okay sometimes she's like okay well thank you very much thank this you is a blast. thank you thank you the views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the university of texas please visit slavxradio.com for more information thank you for listening the slavic connection is produced by the center for russian east european and eurasian studies at the university of texas at austin thank you you are listening to the slavic connection i will be your host today this is thomas frenquist and today we had dr chelsea west O'Hare. She is joining. <laughs> not putting a stutter in there. I'll put an um, not a goddamn stutter. Okay, starting over. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we had Dr. Chelsea West O'Hare. She is joining our anthropology department, and her focus is on race and identity and even health disparity. So she's kind of a jack of all trades, sort of. It's a f- <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay, last one.